So let's pray and then we'll come to God's word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we know that we can only understand your word uh, with the help of the Spirit. So we pray that you would give us that help now. Father, we thank you that you offer us life and forgiveness through trusting in Jesus. I pray that we would get a big view of Jesus as we come to your word uh, this morning. We pray also, Lord, that we would get a big view of the helper uh, that he has sent us, the Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, I recently came across uh, one of those golden uh, opportunities to share the gospel with someone that sometimes we get. Uh, I had walked into the barber shop at Watsonia uh, for a haircut. I take a seat in the waiting room there and I look down at all those gossip magazines that they usually have on the coffee table while you wait. Um, But I noticed that one of the books there sort of caught my eye. It didn't look like the rest of them. Uh, It was poking its nose out from underneath a new idea magazine. Uh, And as I moved the other magazines away from it, uh, I realized that someone had placed uh, a Christian book among the reading material of the Watsonia Barbershop. A book entitled Steps to Christ, How to Find Peace with God. And I just remember thinking, I did not expect to see this at my local barbershop sitting on top of Prince Harry there. (laughs) Uh, Now, if there is ever a perfect way into a gospel conversation uh, with my local barber, uh, this would be it, wouldn't it? You could say something like, I noticed there was a particular book on your coffee table about Jesus. Is that yours? If you were going to be a little bit more bold, you might say, what do you think about the idea of peace with God? Now, if you've been a Christian for long enough, I'm sure uh, you've come uh, to many of these opportunities with family, friends and strangers uh, to share the gospel. Uh, But if you're a Christian, if you've been a Christian for long enough, I suspect that you also know how easy it is to stay quiet in these opportunities. Uh, There are many things that make us stay quiet, but let me suggest uh, three kind of big reasons that we might clam up even in a a golden opportunity like this. Uh, Firstly, uh, these moments are just too scary. Uh, In a world that is increasingly hostile to Christianity, it's scary to just put yourself out there and start talking about Jesus. But two, we can lack the confidence that speaking to someone about their need for Jesus will actually change anything. You know, we might think they probably won't listen, so why bother going through all that awkwardness? But three, some of us might still actually be working out whether we ourselves really believe uh, the Jesus of the Bible. I find it too scary. I don't think it will change anything. And I'm not sure necessarily about things myself. You see, if we're going to be disciples who dare to speak about the good news of Jesus in our world, we need help. Well, the good news of our passage today is that we actually have a great help in the evangelistic spirit of truth that Jesus sends to us. This passage will show us that we don't have to be overcome by fear in our witness because the spirit is with us. We don't have to be pessimistic about people's response because the spirit will convict people. And we don't have to remain unsure about what we read of Jesus in the Bible because the spirit-guided words of the apostles 
Well, there we find truth. Uh, my outline basically follows those three ideas, so let's look at the first one, the promised helper. Uh, it's right before Jesus' death. He has been sharing the Passover meal with his disciples and taking the opportunity to prepare them for his departure. Uh, but now at this point in the night, the disciples are a mess of emotions. Yeah, you can probably pop that one down now, Liam. The disciples are a mess of emotions. And if you've been with us for the past couple of weeks, you might actually understand why. Think about what the disciples have just been told over the last few passages of John. They've been told that Jesus is leaving them. They've been told that they're going to be terribly persecuted by the world, some of them even put to death. And now they've been told that they must preach about Jesus to this world that apparently hates them so much. Jesus has essentially said to them something like this, the world will hate you because of me, thank you. Now go into that world and tell them all about me. Now that sounds a bit like a scary mission to me. And clearly the disciples uh, find it scary and overwhelming too. I mean, look halfway through verse 4 where we start our passage. Jesus says to them, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Uh, I imagine all the disciples can think about at this point is actually how disadvantaged they will be when Jesus leaves. Oh, we won't help have his help amidst the persecution. We won't have his guidance about what to say or how to say it. We won't stand a chance when we testify about him. But notice in verse 7 that Jesus thinks the opposite. He says that they won't be at a disadvantage by his going, but they'll, that they'll be at an advantage. In verse 7 it says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus' departure is not loss, but gain, both for the disciples and actually every believer after them. And we saw back in chapter 14 that the coming of the Helper means that believers now have the Spirit of God within them forever. Chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. The Spirit equips the believer to live for Jesus and to speak about him, even in a hostile world. Uh, there is no doubt that it would have been awesome to be there physically present with Jesus, like the disciples and others were. Uh, there is no doubt that it would have been marvellous to see Jesus doing his miracles, feeding the 5,000 or, or raising Lazarus to life. We often think about how good it would have been to be with Jesus physically. But actually the believer today has something even better than that experience. God's spirit in them. You see, Jesus is telling his distressed disciples not to be overcome by sorrow or fear. His going is to their great advantage. See, once Jesus dies for sins, rises to life, ascends to his throne in heaven, he will pour out that spirit upon all believers, upon his disciples and they will have help like they have never known before. When they go out into that hostile world that Jesus is sending them into, 
Well, God's Spirit will be there with them, working in them and through them so that the message they preach will actually find good soil. Jesus says that it's to our advantage that he goes and the Spirit comes. And I think that if we're going to push through the fear of speaking about Jesus to the world around us, we need to get Jesus' big view of the Spirit here. We need to see him as our great helper. We need to know that it really is to our advantage that he comes to us. You see, when we, like the disciples, begin speaking the gospel into the lives of people who don't yet know Jesus, we need to know we're not on our own in that. Uh, when I was doing some chaplaincy at the local footy club in Bandura, it was actually easy to feel like I was alone. It was hard working in such a happy world of unbelief. It was hard work trying to bring the gospel into the lives of people who did seem so happy, healthy and seemingly uninterested. Every time I would drive uh, to training or, or go to a game, I would just be praying, Lord, help me in this. Help me to remember that I'm not alone, that I have your spirit and empower me by your spirit to speak. And now in just a second, we're going to see what the spirit does in the world as we speak the gospel. But first, we have to be convinced, I think, that the spirit is with us. Because when we get that, I think things become a little bit less scary. But second, the Holy Spirit brings conviction to the world. The Spirit makes people see their guilt before a holy God and therefore their need for Jesus. Uh, these verses in 8 to 11 kind of depict the Spirit's work like that of a prosecutor in court, showing the people the damning evidence of their lives that make them guilty before God. And you'll notice that the Spirit uh, in these verses brings a guilty verdict on three separate charges. See, look at verse 8. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So let's take them one at a time, as Jesus does. First guilty charge, sin. Jesus says the Spirit will convict the world concerning sin. Why? Verse 9 tells us, because they do not believe in me. See, the great sin that our world commits is a refusal to believe in God and live under his rule. Uh, this sin is actually most uh, clearly seen in the way the world rejected Jesus, God with us on earth. Uh, the sin of unbelief is not uh, a single thing. It's kind of like a worldview that, that says my way, not God's way. And so when Jesus comes into our world and starts saying to people, I am the son of God, and it's my way, not your way, what does the world do? They crucify him. See, look at John 3.19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his work should be exposed. When the Holy Spirit brings someone to conviction of sin, 
It's like he drags that person into the exposing light of Jesus so that they finally see their life of unbelief for what it is, evil. And perhaps some of you actually remember that particular work of the Spirit in your own life. A few years ago, one of the guys from the footy club that I was uh, doing some chaplaincy at uh, started coming to, to church with me. And he often commented that attending church here was actually quite a scary experience. And it wasn't because he was shy of other people or because things were just so weird here, but it was because every time he listened to those opening prayers, the sermon, some of the songs, he would hear this talk of sin. And to think that so much of his life and worldview was actually considered sin before God he found quite unsettling, convicting, and scary. You see, the Spirit convicts the world concerning sin, Jesus says. He shows us what it really He shows us what is really in us. But he also shows what's actually not really in us, which is righteousness, the second guilty charge. The Holy Spirit will bring conviction concerning righteousness, verse 10. Now, I suspect most, uh, most people in the world want to be seen as righteous. Uh, there is a reason why we choose to put some things on Facebook and not others. I'm yet to see people posting their library or parking fines. Uh, most people, I suspect, uh, would like to think of themselves as generally good people, Uh, Maybe we validate this feeling by the polite way we greet the checkout lady at Coles, or or maybe we validate this feeling by the ethical products we buy. Uh, I recently noticed, actually, uh, that the shampoo that we're currently using in our bathroom says that it's vegan. Uh, Turns out that you can actually be vegan in the way you wash your hair. I never knew that. And then I thought, how righteous am I? (laughs) But you see, the thing about taking confidence in our own sense of righteousness is that it blinds us to how far short we fall of God's standard of righteousness. A standard which we actually see lived out in the life of Jesus. See, unlike us, Jesus loved God and he loved his neighbour perfectly. It wasn't just an external thing with Jesus, but an internal thing. See, I might look good on the outside by the fact that I wash my hair with vegan shampoo. But you see, honestly, no amount of vegan shampoo makes up for the warped state of my heart before God. Another example, we might feel good about about ourselves when we let that other car in front of us. We've been gracious to let him in, haven't we? But how quickly do we start hating that driver when he fails to indicate and we suddenly have to brake? You see, no matter how hard we try, we can actually never escape from our corrupt hearts. And Jesus spent a great deal of time on earth trying to point this out to many of the self-righteous religious rulers of his day. In Matthew 23, we read, Uh, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! 
For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You see, Jesus had exposed the world's lack of righteousness while he was on earth, but verse 10 reminds us that he's not going to be on earth for much longer after this point. It says, I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. So the Spirit's role, therefore, is to continue to do Jesus' work of convicting people about their lack of righteousness. So the Holy Spirit makes people see sin for what it is, and their righteousness for what it's not. But third, the third guilty charge, judgment. You see, the Holy Spirit will bring conviction concerning judgment. He will bring people to that terrible realisation that they're actually on a path to hell outside of God because of their rejection of God and his son Jesus. And verse 11 gives us the reason for this conviction, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, the ruler of this world uh, is a reference to the devil or Satan. Because Jesus conquered sin and death at the cross, the devil stands defeated, and he actually awaits his final judgment at the last day. And the book of Revelation in chapter 20 actually sort of depicts this judgment of the ruler of the world. It says the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now I think we can all sort of agree that it's not a bad thing that the devil gets thrown into a lake of fire. Most people in the world I think are actually okay with that concept. But you'll notice in Revelation 20 that it's not just the prince or the ruler of this world who's judged. It's actually everyone who was in the devil's camp, as it were. Everyone in this world who, like the devil, has lived in rejection of God. They are also judged. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in, this, in the books, according to the, what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, this is the second death of the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, it was thrown into the lake of fire. You see, it's never actually pleasant to speak of God's deserved judgment on sinful mankind. But when judgment is proclaimed, the Holy Spirit does a work of conviction. Uh, many of you might remember the media storm that happened as a result of Israel Folau's tweet about Hal. Uh, as part of this tweet, Israel Folau wrote, um, those who are living in sin will end up in hell unless you repent. 
Jesus Christ loves you and is giving you time to turn away from your sin and come to him. Now, the Sunday following that media storm, uh, someone actually walked into the 5 p.m. congregation. Uh, I was at the front desk, and, and he asked me, had I heard about this tweet? And here I'm thinking, okay, we're about to uh, have a go at Israel Folau here, so how am I going to respond? Right, think carefully. Um, but he didn't do that. He said this, Oh, well, it's good that you know about it, because I actually think I'm going to hell. And would someone here be willing to help me repent? Now, when I got back up off the floor, um, I said, yes, of course. There are many of us here who would love to do that. You see, sometimes the message of judgment doesn't always come in the right tone or with the right tact. There's been much comment about Israel for how in that regard. But what that moment in the 5 p.m. service reminded me of was that in those rare moments where the message of judgment does actually go out to the world, well, the Holy Spirit does a work of conviction among some. Uh, The Holy Spirit brings people to see Jesus as their saviour, first by convicting them of the horror of their own sin, unrighteousness and judgment. And actually in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, we see the evidence of all of this. As Peter preaches the gospel to a gathered crowd after Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension, after the Spirit has been poured out, Peter preaches, and to that crowd he lets them know in no uncertain terms that they were culpable in the murder of God's Messiah, but that God had actually raised Jesus to life. And actually just look, as we look at that passage, how the Holy Spirit then brings about conviction in the hearts of Peter's audience. He says this from verse 36, "'Let all the house of Israel know therefore for certain that God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They were cut to the heart. And you see, that conviction didn't come about because Peter was just such a good public speaker. It came about because the Spirit made Peter's gospel message penetrate their hearts. And if you have been convicted here this morning of your sin and your judgment, I would actually encourage you to do the same. Repent, turn from your sin, and trust in Jesus for forgiveness. Because as we're going to see in the Lord's Supper later, he willingly gives it to all who come to him. So what do we take away from Jesus' words at this point? Well, I think it's, Uh, that we've got to have confidence in the work of the Spirit. 
as we seek to share the gospel. I think what makes speaking about Jesus with others difficult is actually our low view of the Spirit's convicting power. You see, I think we kind of lack conviction sometimes that there will be conviction. Yes, some will continue in unbelief, but not all. The Spirit will bring conviction as we continue to be bold in sharing the gospel. And now it may not be immediate, like Acts 2. Jesus never gives a time frame on that. And this passage doesn't put restrictions on the, on the sort of person that the Spirit brings conviction to. See, I suspect that we often think it will be maybe the, the more sensitive soul that he brings to conviction, or the person whose life is just in that little bit of chaos who he might bring to conviction. But there are no restrictions, and that should give us confidence to speak to all sorts of people about Jesus. And pray that God would bring all sorts of people to conviction and salvation. See, the local barber, he's worth talking to. Your uninterested teenager, they're still worth talking to. Our well-mannered neighbour, he's worth talking to. But finally, the Spirit reveals the truth of Jesus to his disciples. I think we all want to know that what we believe is uh, and how we live is based on truth. Uh, for Christians, it's actually of crucial importance that we're confident that what is taught to us about Jesus and his apostles in the New Testament is true. Uh, we base our lives on it as Christians. And in fact, the world will only ever end up hearing about the gospel message as we are convinced that it's true ourselves. I remember when I was working in the city and I went out to lunch with some of my work colleagues and we got to talking about Christianity and one of the uh, ladies in the office there, who liked to take a dig at me every so often, we're good friends, but she said to me at lunch, Chris, how do you think you would feel after you die and when you realise there's just nothing there? and that your whole life has been a waste. And at one level, that's kind of a fair enough question, right? Or maybe you'd feel like an idiot. See, if the authors of this book can't be trusted to tell me who Jesus is and what it means to follow him, as my colleague had assumed, then I probably am wasting my life and I'm not going to be here next Sunday morning. I'm going to the baseball with my neighbour. But you see, when the, what these last verses are reminding us is that the Christian life, which is centred on Jesus and governed by the teaching of his apostles, is actually not a waste because it's true. It's true because the Spirit of God has guided the words of these first disciples, apostles, in truth. See, look at verses 12 and 13 in your Bibles. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whoever, whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. 
Because Jesus has already identified himself as the truth, it's best to understand the Spirit's role here as guiding the disciples into a true understanding of Jesus, all that he said and all that he did when he was with them. The Spirit also makes known the things that are still to come. He will help the disciples grasp the great significance of Jesus' death, his resurrection, the ascension, and what it means to live for him as they await his return. The Spirit of God will make sure that they know the truth of all of these things and record that truth so that future generations of believers might also be guided in the truth. You see, we are guided into all truth by the Spirit as we read the words of these Spirit-guided apostles. And notice what the mission of the Spirit is in all of this, to glorify Jesus. Look at verses 14 and 15. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit works to glorify Jesus by making known the gospel in all its glory to the disciples. The Spirit continues to bring glory to Jesus by bringing people like you and me to conviction and having them believe in and follow that same gospel proclaimed by the apostles. And that's actually what we see again in Acts 2. After the crowd has been brought to conviction by the Spirit, after 3,000 are added to the number, the very next words we read are these, and they devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and prayers. You see, because they knew that the Spirit who had changed their heart was the same Spirit who had revealed the truth to the disciples about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him, they devoted themselves to their teaching. And so I think the application here is that we need to live confidently by the Spirit-guided words of the apostles that we have written for us. We grow in our faith as we listen to them. And because Jesus says that the Spirit guided them in all truth, we should actually be wary of uh, when we hear of others claiming to reveal more truth of Jesus than the apostles do. So something like Mormonism and other groups claiming to have extra revelation should actually be rejected. But we should also be wary of those who claim that the words of the apostles are somehow of less importance than the words of Jesus recorded as direct speech in the Gospels. I actually came across this group recently um, called the Red Letter Christians. Their slogan is, somewhat ironically, taking the words of Jesus seriously. Uh, they are called Red Letter Christians because they give primary attention to the direct speech of Jesus recorded in each of the Gospels, which in some of your Bibles will be in red. But you see, the effect of this message is that the rest of the New Testament word is essentially downplayed, made less significant. And it's sometimes tempting to buy into that view of the word of the apostles, particularly in a secular uh, age that we live in. See, if we can write off what the apostles teach throughout the rest of the New Testament, we may well be able to avoid 
certain teachings that challenge the world's opinion on some hot-button issues like sexual ethics or God's judgment. But you see, that's not what Jesus is telling us here, is it? He wants us to know that the words that they speak, his disciples, his apostles, must be trusted as his word because they have been guided by the spirit he sent. So the spirit is sent as our helper. He brings conviction to the world and he reveals the truth of Jesus to and through his apostles. Well, what did I end up doing uh, with that golden opportunity at Watsonia? Uh, Well, to be honest with you, I blew it. Uh, I think I blew it anyway. Uh, By the time I got around to formulating what I would like to say in my head, the haircut was actually over. Um, And in the end, it just sort of became a bit of a bumbling mess that didn't really go anywhere. Uh, And I tell you this um, really because it's sometimes helpful to remember that other Christians struggle to take and make the most of these gospel opportunities. Uh, But I also tell you this because it's helpful to remember that the Spirit can actually continue to work in us boldness with the next opportunity that we're presented with. Uh, I actually found this out a couple of days ago as I've been kind of ruminating on this passage throughout the week. Um, It's been all in my head. And on Friday, I decided to go for a walk to get a coffee. And as I headed out uh, down the street there, uh, I saw my neighbour across, uh, the, across the road in his yard. And I just thought, am I going to just continue going for my coffee or am I going to go talk? Coffee's tempting, but John 16 is making me go talk. And so I went and had a bit of a chat with him. And actually, as I was chatting, I thought, um, though it's easy to keep walking, um, I actually need to speak to him. Uh, Because I've been reflecting on what I had been reading, I felt actually empowered to go speak to him. See, because I had remembered that on my own, uh, it is actually scary to go and tell the gospel to someone. But I wasn't on my own, according to what I'd just been reading in John 16. Uh, Because I remember that the Spirit brings conviction, I actually went into that conversation with a sense of hope. Uh, Because I remembered that the uh, the absolute truth of the message, I believe, I actually started speaking, I found, with a renewed sense of confidence. Now, I think I just had the privilege of soaking myself in John 16 all week. Uh, Maybe you could do that too, and you might find uh, some encouragement yourself. And look, I'm sure I'll continue to struggle in future opportunities, but it's encouraging, isn't it? What we can do when we realise the help we have in the spirit that we're being given. Let me pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you that in your great mercy you have sent us your spirit. Uh, Thank you that... He helps us. We're not on our own. Thank you that through him the world comes to conviction of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. 
Father, thank you that in your mercy you brought us to that conviction and that you brought us to see the glorious hope and forgiveness that is found in Jesus Christ. Father, help us to keep listening to the word as your revealed truth. And may we go into this week with a renewed sense of confidence to proclaim this gospel message to the world. Amen.